Hello and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I'm your host, Topher M. Ford. With me is my co-host, Brandon Givens. Brandon, I have no idea why I'm talking so fast. Oh, well, you know, it's like uh, kind of back in the earlier news, uh, Walter Cronkite time, maybe oh, a bit before. Cronkite always... slow, didn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. That's what made him so special. But everyone else... Up next. Oh, and, uh, you mentioned a lot of information uh, in. You mentioned the exception frame. to the rule to highlight the rule. I see. <laughs> You're playing some 4D chess there, Mr. Givens. I assure you it was purely accidental. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, today we are going to d take a profile, take a look at um, our current CIA director, William J. Burns, um, we're not giving him the full CIA files proper treatment just yet. I feel like it's a little too early to do that. Um, have to see how the rest of his tenure plays out. But in the meantime, it seems like a good idea to at least know who he is since he's running the agency right now. Um, yeah. And will he burn it down? I, I'm guessing no, because he seems like a relatively mild-mannered character compared to, you know, especially the last couple of directors. Uh, well, Pompeo well, as you as you name the ship, so it sails. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about. Um, oh. So this is an, uh, an interesting thing, uh, just a thing to talk about before we get into Burns. What we're going to learn is that uh, Bill Burns is a career diplomat, and his father was uh, a career military man. He was a general and then an ambassador. Um it kind of, you know, like it runs in the family. It almost seems like a legacy sort of thing. And it reminded me a little bit of, uh, you know, the previous administration under Trump. Uh, they talked a lot about the deep state. And I don't know, to me, it kind of seems like if there, if there, if there was a deep state, which I mean, I guess there is depending on how you define it then uh, Bill Burns would probably be in it like grandfather did. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk a little bit first about this concept of a deep state. Um, so I've got a quote here from Business Insider. This is a quote actually from uh, Trump's, one of Trump's public relations figures, Mr. Sean Spicer, if you remember him. Spicy. Um, yeah, that SNL, that was one of the best bits on SNL. So this is from yeah, uh, Business Insider quoting uh, one of his PR meetings. Um, a reporter asked him, does the government believe that there is such a thing as a deep state that is actively working to undermine the president? Spicer replied, quote, I think that there's no question when you have eight years of one party in office that there are people who stay in government, 
affiliated with, joined, and continue to espouse the agenda of the previous administration. So I don't think it should come to any surprise that there are people that burrowed into government during the eight years of the last administration and may have believed in that agenda and want to continue to seek it. And so, and it's on, uh, actually, Sean Spicer's response there is a relatively mild take on how Trump and his supporting media portrayed this deep state as like the shadowy cabal that was working to undermine his government at every opportunity. Well, then, yeah, I would say, like, I, I told it was like, I agree with Sean Spicer. That's obviously what's going to happen. It's what you would expect, especially if you don't fire people from the previous administration, which would just be absolutely corrupt with anyone who was hired. I mean, there are appointee positions, and then there are, you know, like, more career-based positions. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, he's kind of right. And so people will say, so you admit there is a deep state. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so so the original concept of the deep state, according to the things that I looked up that I can't find the link of now, <laughs> but the concept of a deep state originated in Turkey and in surrounding areas, and it was basically uh, to, a reference to corrupt officials and criminals uh, running the government, that they had overtaken the government and they were using it to enrich themselves. Um, well, there's a word for that in, um, in political science. We say the state is captured when, you say, when a small group can stop the government from doing something. Like if the people want something done or the representatives want something done, which those two things don't always align, uh, but neither can get their way because a small group has the ability to stop it, then the state is considered to be captured. Okay. So, there's so, an argument that the U.S. is captured. And no. I imagine there's always been an argument for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so th th we've got that argument, that definition of deep state, a captured government. It made me think of Russia at, right, immediately after the fall of communism and how the uh, Russian organized criminals sort of swooped in and when all of the state-held resources were privatized, uh, they swooped in and bought them, you know, for pennies on the dollar, so to speak. I don't know what the Russian equivalent of that would be. But so, yeah, um, then there is this the way Trump constantly referred to it and made it seem like this other definition of like, like I mentioned before, a shadowy conspiratorial group. Mm -hmm working to undermine the president, he really made it sound like, you know, very similar to the concept of like a new world order. So well, Illuminati. It's just a different, yeah. it's just the rebranding of the Illuminati. 
Right. It's like, oh, exactly. Illuminati sounds too hocus pocus. Uh, it sounds too, you know, satanic. And we want to keep our. It's also played out in the very nineties. Right. So you let's, gotta, you know, you gotta, use a, you gotta do a little rebranding. But it was. But Trump yeah. basically used it as an excuse every time he couldn't get his way. You know, if like with the Muslim ban, he tried to do that. Uh, did the the courts uh, didn't uphold that? That was the deep state, you know. And just that checks and balances, checks and balances in our constitutional government is as written and designed by the founders. Even if they were, it, even if his efforts were, uh, you know, shot down by judges that he appointed, still deep state. Um. And then there's this other notion of the deep state that I have heard. So some of you listeners uh, are probably familiar with podcaster Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, and his podcast that he hasn't put out in a while called Common Sense, where he talked about um, current events. Um, but he talked about going to some conventions and meeting with some, you know, like career military men who'd been uh, in the military, whatever, armed forces, for their entire lives, you know. They joined up at, when they were 18. Now they're, like, in their 50s, 60s, still in the military, in higher positions. Uh, and then you have the same thing with uh, government officials who were appointed or hired. They weren't elected. And they've just been working in uh, public service or the, you know, foreign office, uh, State Department, things like that. But they've been there pretty much their entire career. And this to me is like the real deep state, uh, I guess. I, I guess the term deep state doesn't even really apply, but that's, you know what I kept thinking about when Trump would mention the deep state and that there is no conspiratorial connection there. It's just, you know, this collection of career military and public works people, um, which is kind of where I, you know, Bill Burns falls uh, like, a, uh, and we'll get into that here in a bit, but I just wanted to have a little bit of a discussion. It seems like a good place to, uh, you know, mention. Well, you have like uh, in the State Department. Well, not all, not all ambassadorships are um, appointed, but many are, and it, it's become something that um, um, can be like a prize. Like, oh, you raised a lot of money for me, so you get to be the ambassador to Singapore. Um, but then some of them are like, well, you know, whoever goes to Russia and China, that, you know, often someone with some State Department influence, so, you know, former senator or something. But, um, but you know, most, I think most uh, ambassador positions really are career state service employees. But um, when they, whether they have a, a, whether it's an appointed position or not, there's always someone there that's been there 
you know, that's a career State Department that's, employee. Right. And, and those are the people that I'm kind of referring to. Maybe they're not the ambassadors. You know, maybe the people at the very top have a higher turnover rate. But there are always going to be people who have been there the whole time, you know, that aren't necessarily, they weren't appointed, they were hired on, and they've made themselves indispensable, you know. Yeah, they're, they're good at their um, jobs. They've been around a while. Right. They're good. They're, yeah. Yeah, they know where everything is. They know where the, you know, where to find the, the uh, sawdust for the vomit. And you know how to yeah. find uh, the expensive uh, champagne that this amb you know that this foreign leader really likes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean if that's well, if that that but what what you're kind of doing is you're finding something that's completely innocent and connecting it to this deep dark um, conspiracy label. Because it's actually good that you have people that aren't fired any time a new political party comes into power. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you've got career basically that you've got people who've dedicated their lives to working in these positions, and they don't have a shadowy agenda. They're just doing their job. Uh, all right. Well, I guess having said that, let let's uh, let's talk about old Bill Burns. So, William Joseph Burns was born on April 4th, 1954 at Fort Bragg, North Carolina to Peggy Cassidy and William F. Burns. So, his father was Oxford educated and a major general in the Army. He served as the director of the United States Armed Control and Disarmament Agency under President Ronald Reagan. He worked to negotiate nuclear disarmament agreements with former Soviet states, and he worked toward the same ends under President George H.W. Bush for the Nunn-Luger uh, Act. So William Burns' dad was, um, I mean, although he was, a, <laughs> he, uh, well, he worked hard, yeah, well, as far as like the nuclear thing goes yeah he you know he spent most of his uh like the back half of his life working to try to uh reduce nuclear arms among you know a lot of the world powers which is something that uh, his son you know picked up the torch on um and his dad uh this is from his obituary his dad's obituary his dad died in 2021 uh, at 88 years old uh this is from his obituary at legacy.com quote he was a devoutly religious person eager to help anyone who required it he had a wonderful dry sense of humor and enjoyed making all around him laugh he was full of stories, some of which even had a grain of truth. He was the <laughs> he was the patriarch and always there for his extended family. So I mean, and you know, and that's a an obituary. Uh, so that's cute, yeah, sweet. But uh, you know, given that this is, uh, I guess, kind of a quick and dirty episode as opposed to a deep dive, I I didn't have time to find like really good sources to give some uh, granular detail 
on his father's life or even his early life. Um, I don't know that it's out there yet anyway. I'm sure at some point his life will be dissected and we'll get a book about it. But um, so, yeah, for right now, it's just the main stuff we know is his dad, William F. Burns, uh, worked his way up to major general. Then he retired from the military and basically became a diplomat um, trying to broker nuclear non-proliferation agreements, um, especially with with the uh, former Soviet states at, you know, during and after, immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union. So I think that's a good work. I mean, at least on the surface, it sounds like he was doing good work. Yeah, yeah, maybe he's reduced the number, his work helped reduce the, the number of nuclear missiles that we will be able to survive nuclear holocaust. Yeah. All right, so um, as far as uh, Bill Burns, the son, like I said, I couldn't find anything on his childhood, uh, but he was born on a military base at Fort Bragg and uh, raised by a military father, so... That tells you a little bit, anyway, about his childhood. Here's from uh, state.gov as far as, like, his uh, collegiate career. Quote, Ambassador Burns earned a B.A. in history from LaSalle University, and M.Phil and D.Phil, or the, I'm, those are uh, PhDs, I'm assuming? Master of Philosophy, philosophy. Master of Philosophy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, MPhil and DPhil degrees in international relations from Oxford University, where he studied as a Marshall Scholar. He is the recipient of three honorary doctoral degrees. So just like his father, uh, edu Oxford educated, he's also a member of the American a Academy of Arts and Sciences. And so he he and his dad remind me of. And this isn't, <laughs> well, in a way, yeah, but, but further than that, it reminds <laughs> me of the, uh, like the political leaders from the fifties and sixties, um, especially the Republicans, not that I'm, I don't know that they were, you know, aligned with Republican and, and or Democrat because Bill Burns served under uh, Republican and Democratic presidents, but um, you know the uh, this uh, the elite upper class educated men who were smarter than everyone else, and so they you know knew they were fit to lead, and that you know, and these were like the kind of people who were running, especially the Republican Party, until it was sort of co opted by populist leaders um so uh this is from uh state.gov what it uh a, a little more insight onto uh into bill burns uh quote ambassador burns is the author author of economic aid and american policy toward egypt 1955 to 1981 
He speaks Russian, Arabic, and French, and is the recipient of two Presidential Distinguished Service Awards and a number of Department of State Awards, including two Distinguished Honor Awards, the 2006 Charles E. Cobb Jr. Ambassadorial Award for Initiative and Success in Trade Development, the 2005 Robert C. Frazier Memorial Award for Conflict Resolution and Peacemaking, and the James Clement Dunn Award. In 1994, he was named to Time Magazine's list of the 50 most promising American leaders under age 40 and to Time's list of 100 young global leaders. So, you know, he came out the he came out a uh, swinging you know, after college and yeah, showed a lot of promise. Yeah, of I mean, the fact would, that so, yeah, yeah, he's ambassador to um of Russia and Jordan legacy, yeah. Right. Pretty pretty impressive. So uh he entered uh he started his career with the Foreign Service. Uh he served as an executive secretary from January ninety six to February of ninety-eight. He was then a made uh this is the first time I've seen like the full title of an ambassador. It's he was made Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenopotentiary to Jordan, where he served from 1998 to June 2001. That's a long title. (laughs) Yep. Uh, It sounds very, very kind of um, British sounding, but they have, they have different, they have different titles. Right. But this shows, uh, you know, what we were talking about serving under, like no matter who the the person in charge is, you know, staying sort of apolitical, I guess. I don't know. Well, that's probably the wrong yeah. word, but um, what? no, no. Well, they're uh, apartisan. <laughs> they're supposed to be apartisan. Yeah, nonpartisan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So he served as the ambassador to Jordan from 1998 to June 2001. So that would have been under Bill Clinton. I don't know that he would. Well, yeah. And then from uh, 2001 to 2005, he served as assistant secretary for of state for Near Eastern Affairs. And then from 2005 to 2008, he was the ambassador to Russia. And in 2008, he was made a quote-unquote career ambassador. I'm not sure exactly what that title means, uh, but it sounds like... Well, my understanding is, yeah, they get um, appointed and transferred, um, but it's kind of like the the top person at the embassy. Yeah, I was going to... Promotion. That's my understanding, but yeah. So under George W. Bush, you know, he served as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs and then as Ambassador to Russia. And then uh, from 2008 to 2011, he served as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. And then uh, finally, he served as Deputy Secretary of State from July 2001 to November 2014. I'm sorry, July 2011 to November 2014. Uh, after that, he retired from the Foreign Service. And he, you know, uh, that last bit, he served 
at some point in there, he also served as like acting secretary of state while Hillary Clinton went through her appointment process. So he sounds like a very highly trusted individual in his position. So maybe a kind of a safe appointment to the CIA uh, director. Uh, I guess we should take a look at some of the, you know, the, the political situations that he was working in. So he served uh, as his first ambassadorship was to Jordan uh, from 98 to 2001. We're just going to hit a few of the highlights of his um, career as an ambassador. He's, you know, from 2005 to 2008, he was the ambassador to, ambassador to Russia under W. And W's relationship to Russia was a little, uh, I don't know, would you, would you call it hostile? I, I don't know. I mean, he seemed to have a crush on Putin, seeing his cross and everything, but um, it was still at the time when the Republicans didn't like the Russians. Uh, so it was still in the way back where they saw them as, as a bit of a threat. Um, this is much more hostile under Obama. They really don't like, they really didn't like Hillary and Obama. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to say when it's like, um, how the relations are, because even when they're kind of friendly, it's frenemy. You know, uh, I think the general, like, view in retrospect, anyway, is that uh, President Bush. W was tough on Russia and I you know that may be that may have been mostly like a rhetoric thing that his talk was tough on Russia and then Obama t took over and initially uh, when Obama first took office he called for a full reset on relations with with, with Russia uh, George W. had pushed for NATO expansion in the area, but Obama tried to work with Russian President Dmitry Medvedev to reduce nuclear arsenals, and the two leaders signed the New START Treaty in 2010. And if you remember, uh, Dmitry Medvedev was Putin's sort of stand-in president because the Constitution didn't allow him to have... It, it limited the consecutive number of uh, terms you can serve as president. So Medvedev was basically appointed by Putin, and then Putin served as prime minister and sort of ran things, you know, backseat driver situation. Right. Uh, but it does it does seem like at the at the beginning. Uh, when Medvedev was in office, that uh, Obama was trying to uh, rebuild relations with Russia. But when Putin reclaimed the office of president in 2012, uh, those U.S.-Russia relationships backslid. Another big thing that... Um, that Bill Burns is credited with playing a major role in was the Iran nuclear deal, uh, formerly known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. 
The agreement stated that severe sanctions on Iran would be lifted in exchange for the dismantling of Iran's uh, nuclear development programs uh, and for giving official inspectors access to the process. I've got a big chunk of text here from uh, the website for the Council on Foreign Affairs that gives us some more detail. Quote, Iran agreed not to produce either the highly enriched uranium or the plutonium that could be used in a nuclear weapon. It also took steps to ensure that its Fordo, Natanz, and Eric facilities pursued only civilian work, including medical and industrial research. Iran agreed to eventually implement a protocol that would allow inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency the United Nations nuclear watchdog, unfettered access to its nuclear facilities and potentially to undeclared sites. Inspections are intended to guard against the possibility that Iran could develop nuclear arms in secret as it has allegedly attempted before. The EU, United Nations, and United States all committed to lifting their nuclear-related sanctions on Iran However, many other U.S. sanctions on Iran, some dating back to the 1979 hostage crisis, remained in effect. They cover matters such as Iran's ballistic military program, support for terrorist groups, and human rights abuses. Though the United States committed to lifting its sanctions on oil exports, it kept restrictions on financial transactions which have deterred international trade with Iran. The parties agreed to lift an existing UN ban on Iran's transfer of conventional weapons and, and ballistic missiles after five years if the IAEA certifies that Iran is only engaged in civilian nuclear activity. So that's that was the uh, you know the the bones of the nuclear deal that uh, was worked out with Iran under Obama. And uh, Bill Burns is credited with, uh, you know, being the main facilitator of this by working his back channels, talking to the, you know, all the people who know the people and, uh, you know, making this happen. And uh, I guess there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not the deal was a good, uh, a good deal. I think that debate depends on like um, whether or not you like Obama. I mean, most of the complaints I've heard about it, they're not based in much reality. It's, oh, we should have held out for a better deal or we should have shaken our fist a little bit more. And just because it happened during the Obama administration, it had to be awful. It had to be showing weakness or something. Right, finding things to know oh, yeah. because uh, the complaints against it, the criticisms against it, reminded me of the criticisms that um, the military and CIA figures had with Kennedy over the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you remember, uh, uh, you're being Kennedy weak. You're uh... worked out with. Yeah, Kennedy was like, 
our situation is our enemy has nuclear missiles, uh, you know, like right off our coasts, and we want them to <laughs> get rid of them. So let's, and then he worked that out with cruise ship. They worked it out and got, you know, took care of that, got the missiles out of there. And all of his critics were like, you shouldn't have just got him to get rid of the missiles. You should have gotten him to do all of this other stuff. And Kennedy was like, that's not, that wasn't realistic. We couldn't, you yeah. know, and trying to like strong arm him into, you know, capitulating to all of our demands was not realistic. We had a major crisis that needed handling and we could circle back to the other stuff later. But, you know, this is what needs well, that, taken care of yeah, they now. Were, uh, well, they were, they were also mad because the U.S. Uh, or part of the deal was, I think we were not going to pull our missiles out of Turkey or not put them there in Italy. And then they're like, ah, oh, you know, that's hurting our defense now. It's like, ah, oh, it seems to be a fairly even trade. And but I, I think those guys, they just weren't worried. That, you know, even if the... Um, nuclear missiles were fired. They were like, oh, we'll survive it. You know, it's not really going to be the end of the world. <laughs> and I mean, that was not their, their attitude. And yeah, not for us. And I mean, you know, they're, they, in some respects, they may have been right as far as like, um, you know, like nuclear winter and, and all that. A lot of those were horror story boogaboos. But at the same time, yeah, if it lands on New York City, millions of people are going to die. And they're like, no, we'll win the war. <laughs> like, uh, right. Because they were completely swept up in a, the means justify the ends. Or the ends, oh, sorry, ends justify the means. And uh, I think that the critics of, of the Iran nuclear deal, the ends for them are just to make Obama into a villain. Uh, every step of the way. So, um, so what happened after that? Uh, the agreement was supposed to start, you know, toward the beginning of, well, start in early 2016. So the, here's some more from the, uh, the Council on Foreign Affairs website. Quote, the agreement got off to a fairly smooth start the IAEA certified in early 2016 that Iran had met its preliminary pledges and the United States, European Union, and United Nations responded by repealing or suspending their sanctions. Most significantly, U.S. President Barack Obama's administration dropped secondary sanctions on the oil sector, which allowed Iran to ramp up its oil experts to nearly the level it was prior to sanctions. The United Nations and many European nations also unfroze about $100 billion worth of frozen Iranian assets. However, the deal has been near collapse since President Trump withdrew the United States from it in 2018 and reinstated devastating banking and oil sanctions. Trump said the agreement failed to address Iran's ballistic missile program and its proxy warfare in the region and he claimed that the sunset provisions would enable Iran to pursue nuclear weapons in the future. So, 
Well, if you can't fix all the problems at once, you shouldn't fix any of the problems. You got to fix all the problems, not just not just a couple of them. So we got to redo the treaty. And but now, well, now how, how many problems are being fixed? Yeah, it's really it's really turned around. Of course, what else did Trump do with Iran? Uh, He assassinated one of their major leaders. Yeah, and I don't know really what good effects that had. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily crying that fellow was was killed or or not. It just uh, if you're trying. Well, you know, this this whole thing about being harsh, if you just are harsh, then, oh, they'll want to negotiate, and it doesn't quite work that way. But at the same time, offering up right. flowers doesn't really work either. Like, um, uh, right. Obrador in Mexico, he's like, oh, we're not going to go really hard after the drug cartels. We're going to try to relax, and, um, and, and violence has gone up. And it's like, God. Right. You think from you a know? diplomatic standpoint, so just to clarify, because we didn't state uh, initially what we're talking about, this is the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Major General Qasem Soleimani, and Trump had him blown up with a missile. Since at the airport of Iraq, in Iraq, that was my big problem with it, is it was, yeah, it was like at the Baghdad airport. It was at the, yeah, it was like at the airport in um in iraq like so we bombed our ally and that was my big problem i mean like taking the guy out necessarily like uh you know you're going to be working in a covert organization then your enemy state may take you out but it was at the airport of a neutral state essentially a neutral state and like uh, but also from a diplomatic point of view what what was the benefit of it i mean you i mean i understand there's these these moral arguments about whether or not soleimani deserved to be assassinated but what is the the diplomatic benefit of of killing him and what it seemed to me and again i've said this it's kind of my catchphrase now i'm not an expert but from what I remember at the time, this killing was more of a thing. American military leaders, the the generals, hated Soleimani because of, you know, how many U.S. soldiers he was responsible for the deaths of. And they just, you know, were kind of frothing at the mouth to take him out. And, so, and it wasn't hard to talk Trump into doing that because he's like, oh, you want to blow up that uh, Arab guy? Do it. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Persians are not Arabs. Iranians are not Arabs. Nonetheless, <laughs> that is probably accurately what It Trump doesn't said. matter. None of that matters. <laughs> um, the, well, it was also, a, yeah, a, a kind of a tit for tat of the idea because the um, Iranians are supplying weapons to militias in Iraq, and those militias are attacking 
uh, American contractors and soldiers as well as Iraqi contractors and soldiers. So they're like, oh, well, if you're giving them the weapons, the weapons are killing our people, so we're going to kill you. Um, which, I mean, that that's kind of, you know, war. So philosophically or not, you know, uh, militarily, I guess it could have been a good decision because if he's an effective leader, uh, he was really good at it, then yeah, get rid of him. But diplomatically, yeah, I don't know that it really served it. And I don't really know that it was really that effective in reducing the weapon supplies either. But that's not really the, you know, the military's job more isn't necessarily diplomatic. So, you know, when you're asking the question, well, what did it diplomatically accomplish? I don't think the people were asked that question. What are we, what are we accomplishing diplomatically? So like, here's a guy who's right. really good at logistics. Just... Yeah, he's getting weapons to, uh, to people that are killing our people. But us, um, if you, you know, wasn't Stalin, if you got a, um, a person and you got a problem, if you don't have a person, you don't have a problem. And I don't know that the guy that replaced him, he might be just as good though, and which point it was probably a waste of a missile, but, um, Diplomatically, I mean, that's a different question, but diplomatically, I don't think it was that bright. As they then just yeah. they fired a bunch of missiles in retaliation that, that injured a, a lot more American soldiers, and they're claiming they're still biding their time to, to get revenge. So, I mean, at any point, one of our generals might be assassinated, and um, so I don't really know if that's the bell. So returning to Bill Burns, you know, after he, in 2014, he retired from the Foreign Service and he took over leadership of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, which was an international affairs think tank that was based in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's been around since 1910 when it was founded by Andrew Carnegie. and. Uh, describes itself as being dedicated to advancing cooperation between nations and promoting active international engagement by the United States. So even after he retired from, you know, public service, he's, you know, like, he knows what he wants to do, apparently, you know, and that's work <laughs> in uh, foreign affairs. So... That kind of, uh, that wraps up, we're going to do this in two parts. Um, and so that wraps up sort of the precursor. It's his uh, history up until he is appointed uh, to, uh, director of the CIA. So next week, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about his appointment and we're going to run through, um, you know, his methodology for running the CIA and what's made him unique as the director. Um, he's been doing things different. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, uh, you can uh, follow us on our socials, twitter.com at CIA Files Podcast, instagram.com at CIA Files, facebook.com slash CIA Files. And you can... 
Give us a review. What were you going to say? Give, I was going to say, give us a review. Yeah. Yeah. The, these, uh, the ratings, if you like the show, uh, give us a rating inside whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you've got a little extra energy. Uh, give us a review. Tell us what you think of the show. We love to hear uh, what you, uh, you know, what you think and uh, what you want to hear about. You can go to our website, ciafiles.net, uh, to get more information on the stuff. We'll have uh, all the links posted that are, you know, what that we got information from for the for the story today. You can also go there and uh, see our merchandise shop if you want a CIA Files t-shirt or coffee mug. Um, yeah, check it out. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with the follow-up on uh, William Joseph Burns. Wait, was it Joseph? I don't want to say it, but William J. Burns. We'll go with that. All right. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening.